you can see the wisdom that C.S. Lewis had very early on. He was named um, Clive Staples Lewis, and at the age of four, he hated the name Clive's. So a really wise child very early on. And so uh, he ended up wanting to be called Jack. So ever since he was four, he, he named himself, and, uh, and his mom and dad went along with it. And so ever since then, uh, people have always called him Jack. Um, so that's kind of where you, where you got that. He was born uh, November 29th, 1898. To Albert and Florence um, Lewis. Uh, Albert Lewis's dad actually was, he was a bright man, had a lot of aspirations in the areas of politics, but never really uh, met his full potential. He ended up basically um, working kind of as a, um, uh, a legal consultant, in a sense, in Ireland, um, in kind of a small claims types of courts, helping people with basic cases that they're trying to do. But he was really absorbed by his job, and Lewis writes that he never really had his, his father completely. He never really felt the fullness of his father. His mother was an absolute delight. She was actually kind of a bit of a scholar herself. Um, I think she went to Queens College. Uh, what did she major? I think she majored in um, uh, one of the harder sciences or maybe mathematics or something. But she was a very bright woman and loved Lewis. They ended up moving out to the country, and she came up with all kinds of fun ways to treat, uh, to teach him about nature and a love of learning. And, uh, and Lewis just fell in love with learning. His mother had that ability, um, as some of you here, of really teaching how to love learning. It's, honestly, I love to learn, but uh, I don't think I'm, I'm great. Like, I, I'm desperately trying to learn how to teach my son Cooper how to love to learn. But she just had this unique gift on really teaching how to love learning to her kids. And he fell in love with it and loved his mother. Uh, unfortunately, when Lewis was nine, his mother, Flora, died of cancer. And it was at that point, when his mother died of cancer, that he was such an interior, he had such an, a strong interior life as just a child of nine that he thought very profoundly early on. Um, that he, at that point, actually made the statement that he blamed God and rejected belief in God and acknowledged himself as an atheist at the age of nine. Um, and, and he could not ever reconcile uh, because he prayed that, that the Lord would not take his mother, that he would spare her and heal her for cancer. And when, when she went, when she died and the Lord took her home, it was something that was insurmountable to him at the age of, at the age of nine. Um, how many of you saw the movie, by the way, Shadowlands? Anybody see the movie Shadowlands? One of the best scenes in the movie, I thought, was at the very end of the movie. Remember when uh, Jack, when, uh, when Joy died, finally, remember? Um, and Jack had a, a stepson, right? Douglas. Remember how old Douglas was when his mother died of bone, of bone cancer? He was nine, which was the irony of it, because, because Jack, his mother, died of cancer. When he was nine, and they're in the movie, they're sitting up, I think it's up in the attic, and they're sitting on kind of the staircase, and, and he didn't want to talk to Douglas because he didn't know what to say, and his brother Warren really encouraged him, you have to talk to Douglas. So he goes up there, and he sits down, and, and Douglas um, says to C.S. Lewis, says, says to him, Jack, do you believe in heaven? Remember? And, uh, and Jack looks at him and says, um, yeah, yeah, I do. And he says, I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in that in that thing at all, Jack. And I love what he said after that. He looked at him. And I'm, to most people, you would suddenly be frightened, this nine-year-old child saying that. 
And Lewis looks at Douglas and he says, that's okay. That's okay. And and he puts his arm around him and and they both begin to weep. Why do you suppose C.S. Lewis was able to look at this nine-year-old boy, Douglas, and when Douglas says, I don't believe in heaven, he could say to him, that's okay. I would have probably brought my nine-point outline on why God exists at that point. Um, Why do you suppose C.S. Lewis at that time was okay with that? Exactly. He'd been through the exact same thing. And more than that, God was in full control of Lewis's heart and his life and his mind, wasn't he? And Lewis knew that. And there was nothing that a human being was going to look at this little boy and thwart what God was going to do in Douglas's life. And, uh, and it's a beautiful part of that, just Lewis's acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God and how God is in control of these things. And as Lewis said, he was probably the most relentless uh, uh, sinner in all of England, kicking and screaming, coming into the kingdom of God because he didn't want to do it. And yet God just kind of wooed him into the kingdom. So it's just a beautiful story. But that was a major event in Lewis's life when his mother had passed away at such an early age. Uh, at that point, his father, uh, Albert, was such kind of a disheveled father, didn't really know what to do with his boys. And so he ends up sending them off to a boarding school and, without even really checking it out. And it ended up being a nightmare experience. The headmaster there was, was, was almost like an evil man. Uh, the school was run down. They had all of these kids in one toilet uh, in the entire school that they all had to share. It was just an awful experience. And Lewis would write to his father to take me out of here. He finally took him out, and not long after that, they shut the school down and ended up having to send the headmaster to an insane asylum because he was um, diagnosed as being insane. Um, so Lewis comes out of that, goes to other couple prep schools, and eventually... Um, he gets to study with a guy named W.T. Kirkpatrick, who was actually the person that C.S. Lewis's father studied with. So Professor Kirkpatrick willingly accepts C.S. Lewis to come and be a student of his. And when they get to the train station and W.T. Kirkpatrick is waiting for Lewis to show up, Lewis gets in his car, in Kirkpatrick's car, and they're driving. And Lewis, and this man isn't saying a word. He expected to see just a real warm, kind of a grandfatherly professor type, and this wasn't this guy at all. And they get in the car, and as they're driving, Lewis decides to kind of make small talk, and he looks at the hills, and he says, "Um, wow, the hills are a lot bigger than I thought they would be here. And he said the first thing Kirkpatrick says to him is, what? Why would you say such a thing? Defend why you just said that. What basis and evidence do you have to expect what the hills should look like around here? And Lewis at that point thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to live with this guy for two years. And at that point, um, for the rest of the car ride, Kirkpatrick kept pressing him and pressing him to defend why he would expect Hills to look any way at all in a place that he had never seen and never been. And Lewis says it was at that point he re- realized that he was in the greatest place he could possibly be, that he was at a place that his mind was finally going to flourish. And W.T. Kirkpatrick was the one that was going to really be the one that contributed to his thinking, to his mind, and ultimately to help him get into Oxford University, which is where he began his academic career. In fact, Kirkpatrick writes to Lewis's father, and he says to him that uh, Jack will be of no good in life except for two areas, and that is a writer or a scholar. That's all he has in him, which is pretty prophetic because that's what he became a writer and a scholar, but he said Jack really has no other skills in life other than those two things. 
kind of a hard statement, but uh, certainly prophetic because that's what he became. Um, eventually, he goes into Oxford, gets uh, called out, and has to go fight in World War One. And uh, he's he's in the trench warfare deal of World War One. Nine months into World War One, um, all of his friends have died um, that he went there with, and um, he ends up. Uh, I think it was some sort of a bomb or explosion. He gets shrapnel in three parts of his body and ends up having to uh, go back home. And he says later that that was probably the greatest blessing he could have had because he knew that the position that he was in infantry is he, he would have basically had to offer his life and sacrifice it for England. But he got to come back home and resume his studies and uh, and then finish off. Uh, one of the amazing things is is that he actually um, uh, accomplished the rare task of receiving first honors, which of course is the highest you can do in your academic performance, in three fields of study while he was there. Uh, Greek and Latin, medieval and classical literature, and English lit. The only reason he did English literature is because everyone told him that there's no way you're going to get a job teaching anything with Greek, Latin, and medieval and classical literature. Uh, anyone that's teaching in those fields is there till they die. Um, so you better get you better get another field under your belt. So he decided to go ahead and do English lit so he could teach that anywhere. And he ended up getting a job teaching English lit at Magdalen College um, in Oxford. And he taught there for a number of years and then ended up becoming one of the great medieval classical guys. So that's kind of his academic background. Through all of that, he had his wrestling uh, with God, his rejection of God, his dealing with multiple religions, dealing with pantheism, all of these things. But at the age of 31 is when Lewis finally gave his life over to God. Uh, and became a devout Christian. And one of the things that really um, persuaded him that way was what he called later the, the argument for the moral law. So those of you who have been reading uh, Mere Christianity saw that that's a big part of his argument, isn't it, when he starts off the book. It's a huge part of the book. It's the entire first book, actually, that he writes is on this moral law or the law of decent behavior is, is what he calls it. Um, Mere Christianity ended up in 1941, the BBC, because England was at war. Uh, what generally happens when, when people go to war? What usually, uh, what interest suddenly rises in a country when they're at war? Yeah, religion. Suddenly religious faith becomes uh, a great interest to people. And so the BBC, seeing the rise of religious interest, uh, contacted C.S. Lewis and asked him if he would do a radio series. Um, to the troops, to the English troops, um, and just to the common, the common man during the wartime. And so he ended up doing it. And he did a four-part series, and it was later compiled into Mere Christianity, the book that we have. So that's kind of how we got this book. That's who Lewis is. And, and so what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of cut in here um, into the book and kind of see how Lewis kind of began. So let's go ahead and open up to book one. His title is Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. The titles for chapters were so much longer back then. Um, generally, we don't have them that long. But what is the very first thing that he says? Uh, I, I have it right here on the point. The very first thing that he talks about is that we have what are called ethical expectations, right? Do we all have ethical expectations? Okay, give me an ethical expectation that you have for those of you who, let's say, work or have an employer What's an ethical expectation that you have of your employer? Yeah, that you'll pay me, right? That we have agreed that I would work so much and you pay me this much, and so you'll pay me what you said you would, right? And he says essentially that we all have these 
ethical expectations. Now, that in and of itself is no big deal. But what is the big deal to Lewis about ethical expectations? Okay, number one, it's not written down anywhere, and it's that it's not the particulars of the ethical expectations, but it's that everybody in the world has them. That's the point. So, even if they're different, which later he argues they're not that different, but he says even if they were different, what is the fact is that everybody has expectations that they impose upon other people that are ethically related. Is that Would you guys grant him that argument? Is that true? I mean, is there any ethical-less society or culture that's ever existed in the world today? No. Now, we may disagree with certain forms of ethics and moral behaviors and moral practices of certain cultures, but they're still, uh, they're still driven by some sort of ethical mandate that they have. And so he says that there's this appeal to some sort of understood standard. In fact, even... Memory goes on the section. What does he say about quarreling? Remember what he says? Every time you hear people quarrel, what is that saying? Right. Yeah, and in, in fact, if you've ever had a quarrel with somebody, anybody have a quarrel in the last seven days with anybody? Okay, you're guilty. You have, you have established in your own mind that these ethical expectations exist, and they exist not merely within you, but they ex- exist beyond you. Okay, and the reason is because what you are doing is you're having the same experience that every single human being everywhere in the world has. And that is that you have this expectation that certain people ought to behave a certain way. Right. So then he goes into what he calls the law of nature. What is the law of nature? The law of nature. There are things that I guess I give them all to you here. There are things like. Um, sciences, you know, chemistry, gravity, these things. These are things where nature, they're descriptive of how nature acts. Not how nature what? Ought to act. They're descriptive of how nature does act. So whenever we talk about a law of science, what we're saying is that in all of the observations that we have about this particular phenomena in nature, it all, if it always behaves a certain way, then we no longer make it a theory. What do we make it? A law. Right. Now, if you really want to be technical, it still always remains a theory. Because why? What's that? What's that? Yeah, any future moment. We don't have access to the future. Something might happen in the future that might somehow disprove it. Right? So, theoretically, it's always a theory. But until proven otherwise, it's a law of nature. Right? But ultimately, like for instance, gravity. We call it a law of gravity, but really it's the theory of of gravitational attraction. But he calls these things laws because it simply describes nature as it is. But what he says is, and look uh, on on, uh, Roman numeral three here, he says, um, here's an objection that he talks about with respect to moral laws. He says, well, some cultures and civilizations have different moralities, right? Remember where he talks about that? They have different moralities. And if you have your book, I'm not sure which one you all have. If you have this one, that's the one I'm going to be reading out of. So um, you'll see, for instance, what's that? Uh, page six. See page six? He's going to respond to this about this idea that people are saying, wait a minute. For you to say that the ethics and morality exists worldwide, uh, that's not true. He says, no, it is true. 
Um, and so he goes uh, about eight lines down. See where he says, think, very last word on the right side there. He says, think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle. Has that ever happened? Do we know of any cultures where, you know, going to battle and then the first one to run away is the hero? Not at all. He says, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. Could you imagine that culture? Has that, ever, has that culture ever existed? That I get to double-cross you because you've been the kindest to me and I get to become, you know, this virtuous person in my society? He says, that's absurd. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have differed. Now, this is important. Um, you ought to star or highlight this part. This is, this is the part that's important. Men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. So what's he saying there? He's making a qualification because why? What's the qualification there for? Right. So in other words, I may have, for instance, this, this ethical expectation of being kind. Okay? Every culture has that. Every culture has this notion of kindness, of doing good to one another. But does that mean because they have that notion that therefore that notion that they have applies to them to every other culture around them? No, it doesn't. I mean, they could, they could limit that, right, and just say, no, no, it's just to us or just to your immediate family. And so Lewis rightly qualifies this and says, just because you have some people violate this ethical code doesn't mean that they don't believe in the code. The principle of the code remains the same. Y'all, y'all with Lewis so far? Okay. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to establish the universality of the ethical code or the ethical expectation. So no one runs away in battle. No one double crosses the person that's kindest to them. Um, and when it comes to kindness, everyone within their own little subgroup, however big or little that is, expects kindness returned to them. So that's kind of how he addresses this first one. Secondly, he says, well, what if the moral law is simply a herd instinct? Now, y'all tell me, what is the herd instinct he keeps talking about here? Why does he call it the herd instinct? What's that? Okay, one, it has to do with kind of the... The whole, right? The, the, the whole or the group of humanity, right? And what is the herd instinct that he's talking about? Right. So it's taking this wholeness of humanity, right? And what it is that's going to be the best for the herd. So he calls this herd. It's, it is a term using kind of materialist language that if all we are is animals, then what they've done is what the biologist has done is re, he's reduced morality to what? A herd instinct, survival, right? Survi uh, the, the, one, the preservation of myself and the preservation of the whole, okay? Y'all see that? So that's the herd instinct. And so what they're doing is they're saying, listen, all ethics and morality is simply a function of the herd instinct. And what does he say about that? Well, he says, first of all, the herd instinct does not explain what? What ought to be the case, look at page 10, or page 9, look at page 9. He says, uh, right, 
Or is it 10? Uh, yeah, page, yeah, page, uh, page 9, for second paragraph. He says, for example, some people wrote to me saying, isn't what you call the moral law simply our herd instinct and hasn't it been developed just like all our other instincts? No, I, no, I don't deny that, what, that we may have a herd instinct, but that is not what I mean by the moral law. We all know what it feels like to be prompted by instinct, by mother love, sexual instinct, or the instinct for food. It means that you feel a strong want or desire to act in a certain way. Is that true? Right. We have, um, anybody have dinner? Who hasn't had dinner tonight? Okay, good. How many think you'll have the instinct to want to eat something before you go to bed? Are you going to fast so you go, yeah. It's a natural biological instinct. I won't go any further than food tonight. We'll leave it right there. Uh, and of course, we sometimes do feel just that sort of desire to help another person, he says, and no doubt that desire is due to the herd instinct. So, in other words, sometimes you help your fellow man simply because why? It's your instinct. Yeah, I just I want to help this person because they need help. But feeling a desire to help is quite different from feeling that you ought to help, whether you want to or not. This is very big in Lewis's argument, is this oughtness that exists within mankind. And he's going to make the argument that animals who do have herd instincts, do animals have herd instincts? You bet. If you watch PBS or watch National Geographic and there's a forest fire, what are the animals doing? Fleeing. They run. Self-preservation, right? Or you'll see a mother, a mother protecting its young. Right? It's, a, it's an instinct that's built within the animal itself. But what he's saying is, what's unique is that there's a, an oughtness that exists that can't be explained by the herd instinct. And look at his analogy here. He says, supposing you hear a cry for help from a man in danger, you'll probably feel two desires. One, a desire to give help due to your herd instinct. The other, a desire to keep out of danger due to the instinct for self-preservation. Now, if those two instincts were the only two that existed, which one would win out? Careful. Which one? Yeah, it, it depends on the scenario, right? If the chances of my demise are greater than the chances of my survival, then I'm fleeing. But if that's not as great of a risk, then my herd instinct will kick in and I'll try to help, right? So if all of this is those two things, it's all going to be based on what? On me, on how I profit or how I benefit from doing this, okay? But you will find inside you, in addition to the, these two impulses, a third thing which tells you that you ought to follow the impulse to help and suppress the impulse to run away. Is that true? I mean, you see somebody out in a pond, they're, they're crying for help, they're drowning, you're walking by, um, and you go, yeah, I ought to help, right? And you decide, you know, I've got my new suit on, you know, they're going to figure it out, and you, and you walk off. What's the thing that continues to go through your mind? i got to go back. I need to get somebody. I should have helped. I ought to do something, right? And that's what he's asking about. Where does that come from? And so he says, now this thing that judges between two instincts, and there's the key, this ought instinct is the judge between these other two instincts we just talked about, that decides which should be encouraged, cannot itself be either of them. 
You might as well say that the sheet of music which tells you at a given moment to play one note on the piano and not another is itself one of the notes on the keyboard. You get his analogy? In other words, I've got sharps and flats. Well, which do I hit? Well, the notes themselves, the keys themselves aren't going to tell me what to hit. It's got to be something beyond that, which is going to be the judge to tell me which one, if I'm going to actually create this piece of music. The moral law tells us the tune we have to play. Our instincts are merely the keys. And that's huge. Yeah. I think that's a great question. I think probably for, for Lewis, words like conscience. Remember, he's writing, he's, he's talking back in the 40s and the 50s. A lot of stuff is going on in that time with the brain and the mind and materialism. I think things like conscience and these things were probably such debated buzzwords that he probably wanted to stay out of the whole field of consciousness. And is consciousness merely a product of my brain? You know, is it really something that exists independently of my brain? I think he wanted to talk on a more popular level about simply something that we all experience, right? Which is this instinct, this inherent urge to do something. Or if we don't do it, at least that urge that we ought to do something. And I think that really is the power of this argument for Lewis. Is he is the whole? It ought to be called the ought argument as much as the moral argument. Because how often do all of us uh, at least think um, the ought instinct? Every day. Honestly. Would you say a day goes by that, that, uh, that, does a day ever go by where we don't think that we ought to do something? Never. It's so embedded in us. Um, and it's another essay. I forget who, what, what the, who wrote the essay, but I remember their argument was this idea of every day us experiencing the ought is God's way every day of pointing to himself. In the conscience of man. Every time that we feel like we ought to do something, what we're doing is we're appealing to something beyond just our instinct or ability to do it. But we're appealing to something that judges what we sh- uh, judges our instincts and tells us what to do. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Is that this instinct that's in us is kind of the voice of God in one sense. It's the conscience, you could say. It's the conviction of God, maybe, on one level. But whatever it is, Lewis believes that this was built into man. Now, trivia question. Michael will give you $5 if you get the answer uh, to this. Um, what, where in the New Testament do you see the teaching of this moral impulse or the odd impulse or this moral argument that's being taught here? What's that? Who said that? Romans. Romans where? You got 16 to choose from. <laughs> nice. Very good. You ought to know. No, I'm kidding. It's, Ro- it's uh, Romans chapter uh, 1 and 2, actually. Both those two chapters that overlap. Let me just show you real quick. Don't turn your Bible. I'm just going to read it to you. That's what Paul says here. It's very, uh, very much relevant to what Lewis is saying. He says, you therefore... Have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For, whatever, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So what's, what's he arguing here? What exists inside all of us that we end up judging ourselves by? A moral law, a moral instinct, 
right? It's kind of like when I'm, you know, I left my work at uh, 6 o'clock. I've got one hour to go from downtown Dallas, get dressed at Chick-fil-A in the bathroom, grab my Coke and my waffle fries and barbecue sauce, and get here. So, I'm on the highway, you hit the traffic jam, and, you know, I broke the moral law for 10 miles straight. Um, and I, I even thought about this. I'm about to teach this. And uh, I kind of worked my way over on a lane to get going. And as soon as somebody in front of me needed to do the same thing to get over, they could get going, my immediate instinct was, forget you. I'm the only one on this highway in a hurry. You need to relax, you see. And so I did what all of you do. Don't throw me under the bus. Right? I sped up for just a second. And then I caught myself. And I went and hit the brake. And I went, you know, come on. Because I'm doing him some grand favor. You know? And I felt justified that I now abided by the law of decent behavior at that, at that point. But see, Paul argues that is that this instinct is embedded in all of us. That's what Lewis is talking about. Okay? You can't reduce it to a herd instinct because if you reduce it to a herd instinct, you only got two choices. And they're both driven by either self-preservation, right? Or what? Yeah, it's fight or flight. Uh, or it's simply for the whole, for, for the whole, one or the other. But he says there's this other one that judges over those two instincts. And that's the important thing to get here, okay? Any comments or thoughts on that particular segment of his argument so far? Okay. So now he moves on here and he says, um, not only does the herd instinct um, not account for the ought instinct, but it also doesn't account for what, what are we call, he doesn't use this word, but what we would call um, altruistic acts. Now, somebody here explain to me what an altruistic act is. What's altruism? Is it simply doing good? Is that altruism? What? Okay, you're right. With actually nothing coming back in return at all. So it's, it's, it's kind of like I remember when I was at, this is, I'll show more depravity of my heart here. I went to Denny's one day and uh, um, I cashed a check and I had whatever, I had like, you know, a couple hundred dollars in my pocket and I, I was about to go to church, right? And I had my Bible and I'm reading and I look. And um, it was a man that I knew um, had won the lottery, and he won he won ten million dollars, and he was living, um, you know, in, in the Denton area, and he was sitting there all by himself at Denny's, and I just began to, to pontificate in my heart, um, if he knew the Lord, and what if you know I walked over and shared. Christ with him, and he came to know Christ, how much money would he give me for giving him eternal life? You know, I just began thinking that. Um, so that would be uh, an example of a non-altruistic act, all right? If I had actually gone to him and began talking to him, wondering what kind of car would I drive off, drive off in after that. So anyway, once again, the darkness of, of uh, all of our hearts. I'm just the hitman tonight, all right? But uh, I'm speaking for all of us here. But an altruistic act is that thing that I do with nothing in return, all right? So it, it's the, in a sense, it's the soldier 
who um, jumps on the grenade, okay, in a losing battle, just to give his 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 buddies or his comrades a little more time to live. Even though they know they're losing the war, they're losing the battle, they're going to get wiped out, the guy still falls on the grenade in order to, to, to keep these guys from dying too soon. He gets nothing in return. No one's going to know about it. Um, they're all going to die eventually, and yet that has happened time and time and time again, has it not? It's an altruistic act. And Lewis makes the argument, what account for the altruistic act, the altruistic instinct that exists in all of us. Are you going to put it back to merely a fact of nature? It's a product of biology? Well, what does he say about that? What does he say about the, about the role of biology and materialism with respect to ethics and morality? You remember what he says? I'm not going to tell you the page number. If materialism, and when I say materialism, what do I mean by that? I don't mean... Uh, financial materialism. What, what is materialism? Materialism means that the essence of, of all things is matter. It's molecules in motion. Okay? That's all it is. That the essence of all of reality is molecules in motion. Alright? If that is the ultimate nature of all things, it's just nature, then that means everything now can be explained in terms of, of molecules, chemistry, and biology. Everything. So, for instance, let's go ahead and make a, a, a case study here. This tragedy that happened at Virginia Tech. Okay, If you're a pure materialist and you believe that all humanity is, is simply a sack of chemicals, molecules in motion, atoms in motion, and that is all humanity is. You now do not have the ability to account for freedom, free will, uh, true consciousness. Not consciousness as a result of material causes, but true consciousness. That there's this, there's this instinct above and beyond the material world that invades the mind of men. Okay? If you're a pure materialist, you believe everything is a function of chemistry and biology. And therefore, if somebody commits... The heinous act of what happened, let's say, at a Virginia Tech, what ultimately is the explanation for that? What's that? He had no ultimate control. He was simply a function of what? Of his whole system, of his biology, of his chemistry. He had no direct control over those things. It's an aberrant thing. It's not normative because normal people don't do that. And so what we do in a materialistic culture is we define normality in terms of what the majority do for the sake of the whole. But if there's something that breaches that outside of it, it's still a function of biology and chemistry. It just happens to be the kind of the bastard element of the whole thing. It's, it's something that is non-normative. Are you all with me? And therefore, the person does it simply as a result of material causes that he's composed of. That's all it is. It's kind of like, uh, I remember reading in Time Magazine a few years ago, the cover article was talking about um, the, um, and I'll, I'll taper some of these comments because I do see that there's some kids here, uh, but the cover article did, was talking about the hereditary nature of infidelity. And that because we are the product of what? Of an animal heritage. 
and because monogamy isn't a normative feature in the animal kingdom, right? That therefore, even though we are an advanced species, everything doesn't go away. And therefore, the reason that infidelity exists is because a monogamous relationship goes against nature. And therefore, women should be more understanding of that. That's what the article said. And so, they're saying that infidelity is, is, is because of your genes. No pun intended, but that's what, that's the idea that it's, it's something that is materially or biologically driven. See? Y'all see the problem with pure materialism? So if pure materialism exists, is true, if everything is, is, is simply molecules in motion, what, what are ethics, what, what is ethics then? Ruth, what's ethics in a materialistic worldview? It's irrelevant. There are none. Because when you speak of ethics, you're speaking about something that is imposed upon people as a normative oughtness of behavior. See, otherwise you have to say on a materialistic level, all ethics is, is something that we as a consensus, as a social consensus, have agreed upon to say this is normative behavior. See, and now that's all you've made ethics. Now, all of a sudden, um, molesting you know, somebody or rape isn't really wrong in some sort of true moral sense. It's simply the non-accepted behavior or act that society has determined. Y'all see the distinction? And you really begin making some monstrous claims now about ethics. You strip the dignity of man, the sacredness of man from the equation, and now suddenly it simply becomes social convention and social consensus. And that's what Lewis is writing against. And he's saying that's why materialism cannot account for ethics and morality because all of us are aware of an instinct that nature cannot account for. And what is that instinct that nature cannot account for? Oughtness. It can account for the herd instinct, but it cannot account for the oughtness that exists within man. And it certainly cannot account for um, altruistic acts. Okay? Any thoughts or comments so far on that? Anything you guys are thinking out loud or thinking to yourself you want to talk about? Great. Just another hour and we'll be done. I guess not. All right. Finally, letter C. I've already touched on this. I like what he does here. He draws a distinction between a social convention and a law. Um, remember what he talks about um, what side of the road to drive on versus multiplication tables? Okay. A social convention, he argues, are those things that man comes up with that simply are preferences, right? Um, but is the multiplication table a preference? No, it's not a preference. Um, the uh, laws of science, are those preferences? Do you think, you know, I'd sure like to, I'd love to have a law that would let me suspend gravity and fly. Yeah, let's all as a consensus, as a people, let's all agree that that law exists. Is that going to do us any good? Not at all. These are physical laws, okay, that exist. So they're not social conventions. So he draws that distinction. And so what he's asking is the moral law, the law of decent behavior, which of those two does this thing fit under? Does it fit under the, huh, let's come up with some ethics and some moralities that we can all agree on. Is it something like that, like, Huh, do you want to drive on the right side of the road or the left side of the road? Oh, I don't know. If we drive on the right side of the road, 
you know, you just come up with some kind of agreed upon deal. Or is it, wow, um, look at what we discovered, right? I mean, calculus. Was calculus invented? No, was it? Well, was it? It was, it was discovered, right? These certain mathematical laws and theorems, the way they work. It was discovered and it was put together in a system of integral calculus or whatever it is that they have, whatever form of calculus it is. It's not invented. It's simply discovered, right? And he's saying that the moral law, when you come up with a moral law, it's not something that is simply agreed upon by people. It's something that's discovered. And remember, his proof for this is anywhere you go in the world, they, might, they may not have the exact same moral particular that you do, but if you look underneath the moral particular, you will see that there's a principle that is universal, right? So, for instance, y'all give me an example real quick. Give me an example of a moral particular that we as a culture here would say is wrong. Well, no, a moral particular that exists in a culture somewhere else. Yeah, there's no culture that would say murder is right, just to murder. But give me a moral particular somewhere that we would, as a Western culture, say, that's not right. Well, some would argue that that's not a, such a bad thing. Capitalism? Well, there's a lot of people here that say they're against capitalism, too. Huh? Oh, cannibalism. That's the same thing as capitalism, though, in one sense. Oh, it's eating your brother's head. Huh? What's that? Forced sterilization? Okay, there you go. That's a good one right there. Um, we as a Western society would say that that runs against uh, the freedom principle, right? That we're in control of our own bodies. The forced civilization is wrong. Yet maybe you go to China and now they have forced civilization. We would say that that is an immoral law, right? But what is it that undergirds the law for forced civilization in China that we would agree with the principle? What is it they believe that we would say that is true? Population control. That's right. If it's out of whack and you've got over a billion people in the country and they're, they're starving and there's, there's poverty, um, it's not good to have impoverished, starving people. Would we agree with that? Yeah, we agree with that idea that starving, impoverished people is not a good thing to have in a society. Now, the way they try to reconcile that, we would disagree with, but the principle that undergirds that, we would say, is a fundamental universal principle of humanity. Yeah, well, I don't, this isn't a debate, but in general, we're just talking about an average healthy person. We wouldn't say, hey, listen, you can only have 1.4 children, so, you know, or whatever. We would never, well, I say we would never. We're not saying that today because we believe in the freedom of, of reproductive rights in America today. But my point is, take any act in a subculture that we might disagree with, and we will find the undergirding principle that drives that, and we can say, uh, I agree with the principle because it's universal. I just disagree with the manifestation of how they're choosing to preserve that principle. Okay? And that's essentially Lewis's argument here in that whole first section of that book. Okay. Just some basic questions for discussion with your group, okay? Uh, number one, give me, if you can, two, three at most of the strongest reasons you think people today reject the moral argument. For belief in God. Okay, think about that for a minute as a group. What are the major reasons people reject the moral argument for God's existence? Number two, if someone says we should do good 
for the sake of the whole or for the sake of humanity, how would you respond? In other words, when you say, why should I be good? And they say, you should do good for the sake of humanity, for the sake of the preservation of the whole. How would you respond to that? That is, by the way, the the most common response to ethics today. Why should I be good? Because if you're not good and you don't follow this behavior, society breaks down, mankind suffers, and it's the demise of humanity. So if someone says, that's why you should be good, you tell me what you would say to them in response. Okay, got one more, guys. Y'all got your answers on that? Okay, let's do our last one here. This will be an easier one, okay? Just give me, think about just three examples in American history of a fundamental shift in the social belief or acceptance of an ethical or moral practice. A fundamental shift from the social acceptance by the American culture. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, talk about our answers here. We talked about two or three major reasons why people reject the moral argument, okay, for God. So, in other words, somebody reads Lewis's treatise here, and they just, they don't buy it. They don't want to believe it. They reject it, okay? That's the idea. Give me, um, whoever wrote the answers, you can represent your group. Um, give me one of your answers. This group, what's one of your answers? Okay, one, because they don't want to change. Anybody else put that down? Because they don't want to change. All right, to say that I believe in a moral law that's beyond me means that I'm somehow obligated to abide by it. Right, okay, so that's good. What else do we have? You guys have something different? Theodicy? Okay, that, that's, theodicy is the problem of evil and suffering and the existence of God, that that somehow overcomes any argument like a moral argument for God's existence or that evil itself can't be accounted for by God, the existence of God. Okay, good. That's a good one. Okay, right. Okay, so they would reject the moral argument because it's still not enough and you can't show me any more tangible proof that God exists, so I'm not going to play your little word game on oughtness here. Okay. So the autonomy, it's their own autonomy. They don't want to sacrifice their own autonomy. Yeah, and that's real good for a while, isn't it, to kind of embrace your own autonomy. Until someone else's autonomy hits your autonomy. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, I think those are good reasons why people reject the moral argument. I also think um, one reason people reject it is because people just aren't really, um, don't understand it, aren't really fully aware of it. You know, in all of my time of talking with people, sharing the gospel with people that don't believe, this argument right here has always been the one that's been the most persuasive when I talk to people. Because it's the one that's most visceral. Because you can talk about real evil and real suffering. And you have to ask them um, you know, how to account for those things. It's not just us that has to account for morality by saying God has given it to us. They've got to account for it without God. And that's a real hard thing to do at that point. Second question I had was, um, if someone says you, know, you should do good for the sake, just for the sake of humanity, just so that mankind and society can remain civil, so there should be social order, in a sense. Um, what would you say to that? That's a legitimate answer. Okay. So you would appeal immediately to Scripture and say, no, I'm not good because it just keeps order in society. I'm good because it reflects the nature and the character of God. Right? In a sense, the Bible tells you. Their 
demand that you do good for the preservation of humanity is itself an underlying assumed good that they see that as being the good. So you would ask them, why do you see the preservation of humanity as the good? Right? So they're assuming this moral, um, this moral compulsion, this moral obligation for something that they haven't proven yet. That's good, yeah. So once again, you get into this contradiction of, well, who am I trying to appease for the betterment of humanity? Because all these societies have different ideas of that. Listen to, uh, listen to Lewis's response, okay? He says this. If we ask, why ought I to be unselfish? And you reply, because it is good for society. We may then ask, why should I care what's good for society? Except when it happens to pay me back personally. And then you will have to say, because you ought to be unselfish. Which simply brings us back to where we started. You're saying what is true, but you're not getting any further. If a man was asked what the point of playing football, I'm sure soccer to him, playing football, it would not be much good in saying the purpose in playing football is to score goals. For trying to score goals is the game itself, not the reason for the game. And you would really only be saying that football was football, which is true, but not even worth saying. In the same way, if a man asks what is the point of behaving decently or morally, it is no good replying in order to benefit society for trying to benefit society, in other words, being unselfish, for society, after all, means other people, is one of the things which decent behavior consists in. And uh, all you are really saying is that decent behavior is decent behavior. You would have said just as much if you had stopped at the statement, men ought to be unselfish. So, you see Lewis's point about that? Is what you have an answer, just because you ask the, ask the question, um, or say that you ought to be good for the sake of society, he's saying that you haven't explained why am I obligated to society, right? Why do I have this moral obligation to make my culture or humanity to continue on? They don't care, right? Certain people don't care. If you ask this guy before he went to Virginia Tech, before he did it, you ran into him someplace, and he told you what he was going to do, and you told him not to do it, and he goes, why? And you said, because then people will be afraid of going to classes, and they won't want to go to school anymore. Well, what could he potentially say? Why do I care if people go to classes or don't go to school? Or if he says, well, you shouldn't do that because it's not for the good of society. You're going to create fear in society. What would he say? Good, I don't care about, the, I don't care about society. See? What would you say to somebody in that moment if you had it? Not necessarily that it would suddenly keep him from doing such an evil act, but what would you say that his immediate response couldn't be simply, I don't care about that? What's that? I'm going to shoot you first. Yeah. Uh, or somehow you have to invoke, if you want to be more kind to the guy, you would have to invoke some standard beyond him to say there is a judgment upon your behavior that you're going to violate a fundamental moral law of humanity that is your choice to violate but if you do this there's also fundamental consequences built into the moral law last question give three examples of major changes in american history of a major ethical shift that you see the consensus shift and therefore now it's a new belief okay Slavery, that's one of them, right. That was one that all of a sudden, through law, one day it's legal, next day it's not. 
Is that really how we want moral, ethical laws to be based on? It's because society accepts something? Not at all. It's a great question, by the way, to ask somebody. To ask them why is it. I used to do this when I substitute taught um, high school for two years. I would do all the work the teachers wanted me to do real fast. And then in the last 20 minutes of class, I'd go up on the board and I'd write just an egregious act on the board. And I'd say to the class, tell me why this is wrong. And they would always say something like, um, it's against the law. And so then I'd give them an example of when the law said something that we no longer accept and the law was wrong. See, and they would go, well, you can't be based on the law. Well, society wouldn't accept it. Then you give them something like something that society did accept. Does that mean society is always right? Not at all, you see? So it's a great way to, to show that you can't base ethics and morality on social consensus. Okay, that's one of them. Give me another one. But yeah, women voting, right, at one time. Why weren't women able to vote? They weren't gentlemen. That's right. That's what a gentleman was, right? Is a gentleman was a landowner, and therefore, because they weren't landowners, they couldn't vote because they had no vested interest in really the, the property of America. Um, suddenly that changed on the basis of simply rights, right? You don't have to be a property owner to have the right to vote. Um, what else? That's a great one, by the way. What else? Okay, well, now that's not totally accepted today, though. So I, I, I thought someone might say that. Today, everyone, for the most part, is general consensus rejects slavery, um, rejects the idea that women shouldn't vote. But abortion still is a pretty hot tamale still. So we're not there yet. Although you did have a whole class of citizens shift overnight over the course of a vote. So in that sense, you're right. Give me another one. Okay, segregation. There you go. Right. Legal uh, proximity of where certain people can go and where certain people cannot go suddenly overturned through judicial law, right? What else? Prayer in public schools. One day it's essentially accepted by the majority of the nation but rejected by the judges. Right. The next day, it's now illegal, even though you have social consensus still supporting it, which is the irony of that particular one. Any other one? Ah, good. Prohibition. Very good. Yeah, there is there's one overnight once again, just through the writing of law. This thing changes. So we can see numbers of instances where major law was changed very quickly. Uh, consensus shifts. And now you're, act, you're believing or acting in a completely opposite way, and you're simply embracing it because of the consensus of a society. So you can see the absurdity of basing law or basing the good on what society says, can't you? So the next time you're talking to somebody and they're trying to argue that the good is based on the consensus of society, you can very quickly show them, not only am I not obligated to the consensus of society, but society has been wrong multiple times. And just the penning of law does not obligate me to suddenly say that that's the good because there's consensus because law says it.